0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First John chapter 2. We'll be looking at First John 2:28 through chapter 3 verse 3. Let me uh, open up with just a word of prayer here. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace towards us. And God, I confess that it is difficult for me often to see Christ and to see him as being supremely valuable. And as a result, I get tempted to settle for lesser things. And so I pray, Father, this morning that as we uh, look into your word, that by your spirit that you would put Christ on display and that you would help us to see how supremely worthy you are of all that we have, and that we would respond in lives of worship and obedience. In Christ's name, amen. As we look at this text this morning, um, one of the biggest themes that we're going to see is that John is calling the church to live in righteousness and in holiness. And the reason that he's making this call is in light of the fact that Christ is coming again. And that, knowing that, we should live in a certain way today. I was talking with Emmett before the sermon uh, before church started, and we were just talking about how there's a lot of uh, folks that we we have talked to or dealt with at various points and and it's a struggle for us in our context to really think properly about what righteousness looks like. Um, there's a tendency for for us when we when we hear righteousness, perhaps to um, hear legalism or to think that that uh, We have to somehow, through our own effort and just strength of will, uh, sort of give up uh, the fun things of the world and just kind of grit our teeth and, and kind of beast it out in order to be a good person. And that kind of mentality is pretty stifling. And uh, and as a result of that, and, and the fact that that does sometimes, unfortunately, get communicated, if you look at the culture around uh, us, a lot of times people think of Christians as being kind of killjoys, uh, that we're somehow against fun or against life. And and so we have this sort of reputation of all the things we're against. And, And sometimes we have a hard time seeing that the call to righteousness is not a call to give up life. It is a call to pursue life, that it is a call to pursue joy, that it is a call to pursue Christ. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at the text this morning, that ultimately the end result of pursuing righteousness is not that we lose out on life, but that we gain eternal life. And fullness of life in christ jesus so let's look at uh, the text this morning starting in verse 28 of chapter 2 john writes and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming if you know that he is righteous you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the important themes we're going to see is that as John calls us to live in righteousness today, that that is a call that is very much fixed in the fact that reality, that Christ is coming again. And this is important because as people, we are wired in such a way to behave today based off of our expectation of what the future holds. For example, let's say that uh, I'm here at work and uh, I'm getting really hungry. Um, You know, a lot of times... Uh, you guys probably experience this. I, I don't eat very much for lunch because I'm very busy. And so 5 o'clock rolls around, and I'm ready to, you know, just devour a whole cow or anything that's not nailed down. And so I'm starving here at work, and uh, and so I start driving on my way home, and I see a billboard. And on the billboard, you know, there's a picture of a burger that's three feet tall, and it's got all the trimmings on it. And it always looks so much more delicious when you actually buy it at the, um, the fast food place. You know, and so I'm hungry, and I'm experiencing this hunger, and I see this billboard, and I think I'm going to stop and get me some fast food on the way home. Right? Now, if my wife were to call me at that point and say, um, I'm making you a steak dinner tonight, and uh, you know, we're gonna have, you know, it's going to be a steak, and we're going to have a potato with all the trimmings, and there's a salad, and there's going to be this cheesecake for dessert, then because I'm looking forward to something better, I can forego going through the McDonald's on my way home. On the other hand, if I don't think that anything better is forthcoming, I am much more likely to settle for something lesser along the way. And that's an imperfect analogy of our experience of what the future is going to be like for us in Christ. Possibly a better analogy is one that I heard from a missionary at some point many years ago um, who had been doing some work in a a developing country. And he talked about how um, he saw this is a country where people did not regularly get enough to eat. Uh, and he said that he saw a child uh, in the street eating rocks because so often um, there was no food to be had. And so they would eat rocks in order to fill their stomach with something to cause the hunger pains to cease, knowing there was no nourishment, that there was not going to be any fulfillment out of that. But it was something that would temporarily anesthetize them uh, to the hunger that they were experiencing. And that is probably a much more accurate representation of what it is like when we choose to walk in sin in the present. When we're not looking forward to the feast that Christ offers us in himself, and we settle for something lesser. We perhaps experience an anesthetization, a a sensation that we are getting something. But the reality is there's no nourishment, there's no fullness, and we're still starving. And the only way that we're going to be empowered... Today, to turn away from the allurements of sin and to walk in righteousness is to see that something better is ahead of us and that we can forego what seems to be the temporary and passing pleasure of sin for something much, much greater. Okay, So John starts by telling us there is a gospel reality that Christ is coming again. And I know that particularly in the context that he's writing in, they expected that to be something that was imminent. And I think sometimes for us living now 2,000 years after Christ's first advent, it can be easy to dismiss the return of Christ. That can become to seem something that is very distant and far off and perhaps even unreal. But this is a reality that is true and that we need to center our hearts and our minds around. When John writes about Christ coming again, the word that he uses in Greek is parousia. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, by the way. I got this from commentators, um, so I just want to upfront let you know that I'm not awesome at Greek. This is just totally someone else's work. But the Greek word here for the coming that is described in 1 John 2.28 is parousia, which refers to the visit of a king to uh, part of his kingdom. Okay? And this would be a really big deal in the life of the people. You know, even today, we're used to seeing our leaders on the Internet and on television all the time. But if we were to hear that our president was coming to Rome, Georgia next week, that would be a big deal in the life of our community. Uh, Many of us would probably try to get off of work or or do something to be present and to to be able to see him because it's a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity for many to be able to actually experience the coming of a ruler uh, like that to, to our local region. And if that's true today, if we can think today about what a big deal it would be for the president to visit us, how much more so in John's context when they didn't have Internet and television, and many people never even knew what the emperor even looked like. And so the fact that he would be coming uh, to a village or to a town would be a huge state event. People would get off work. There would be this holiday atmosphere um, of, of coming to see uh, the emperor, the king, uh, come and, and to be there in a local sense. And not only would there be this positive sense of, you know, all of the the glory and the splendor and the holiday and the pomp and the majesty of seeing the king, there was also uh, an expectation that when the king showed up that he was going to execute justice on a local level. You know, back in those days, the, the emperor was the final court of appeal, kind of like the Supreme Court in the United States. And so many people, uh, Roman citizens in particular, who had cases, that would sometimes get bogged down in the local level could appeal to the emperor and hope that when he shows up, he could finally enact justice on whatever the situation happened to be. So not only would the king coming, the emperor coming to a local area be a moment of kind of holiday, it would be an opportunity for wrongs to be righted, for injustices to be dealt with, for the guilty to be punished, and for the innocent to be set free. And this is all packed into... This this knowledge or this expectation that John is trying to communicate to the church of what it's going to be like when Christ comes back that he is going to come and he is going to blow our minds with putting his glory on display and justice will be done and it may seem like in the present that wickedness rules it may seem that the unjust get ahead it may seem like that as his people we always seem to be coming in last but when Christ comes again. There is going to be justice that is done, and, uh, and He's going to make things right, and He's going to, to fix what has been broken. And so, in light of that, that understanding, John anticipates there are two different responses that people will have at the coming of Christ. They will either have confidence, or they'll have shame. We look there in verse twenty-eight. It says, "When He appears, we." It says, "Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming." So we're going to talk about the negative first, about the, the shame part, and then we'll look at the, the things that John tells us that can be uh, affirming for us, that can give us confidence in the return of Christ. When you're looking at the shame piece here, um, the way that verse 28 is translated, there's actually a controversy here among translators. Some uh, translations in verse 28 translate verse 28 as saying, uh, not be ashamed at his coming. And the thought there is that that the being ashamed is an active thing that, Christ is going to do to someone Um, this might mean exposing those who were nominally Christian but had not really ever come to see Jesus as being worthy of their worship they may have you know talked a good talk but they weren't really they weren't really there are are going to be exposed publicly as not really having been uh, his children and that would be putting them to shame. Um, this is particularly important in the context of First John, where there's a community here of folks who kind of claim to be super-Christians or being more elite uh, than the local body, and they had left the local body, and they had basically said, you know, we're better than you guys, and, uh, and you, you guys are just kind of second class or, or maybe not even of the faith, and, and they've kind of withdrawn themselves, and John is writing to say, no, those were not those who were really following Christ. They had given up on Christ. They had uh, bought into some false teaching. And so uh, in the light of that, maybe John is even referring to the folks in that category are going to be put to shame. They're going to be, even though they may have thought of themselves as being the true believers of the true church, that they're going to be exposed as frauds and in that sense being put to shame. So that's one way that this gets translated. It's talking about unbelievers whose, uh, despite whatever they might be doing on the outside, are going to be exposed and shamed at the coming of Christ. But some translations in verse 28... Instead, say that we might not shrink away in shame. And the thought there may be referring to believers uh, who are not living in a worthy manner. And so to think about that properly, I think about my own childhood Um, You have to know that I have a very strong relationship with my parents. I've been very blessed uh, by the Lord to have a a father and a mother who love him and who've loved my brothers and me very much. And there were many times growing up where I eagerly waited for my dad to come home from work so that I could hang out with him and talk with him. We share a lot of common interests. Um, And so I, I enjoy time with my father. Uh, But there was a few times growing up where my brother and I uh, just kind of got out of control, you know, boys being boys and just not really listening to my mom. And she would get to a certain point. This only happened a handful of times, thankfully. Um, She would get to a certain point where she could not deal with the situation, and she would call my father to come home in the middle of the day to uh, enact discipline on, on my brother and myself. And I think that for me, uh, the, the, the time I would spend in my room waiting for my dad to come home to enact discipline me, on me in the middle of the day is the closest I can experience what the, the coming apocalypse uh, is going to be like. Because I knew, I knew when he showed up that it was not going to be good, uh, that he was going to be angry uh, because he's having to leave his job, that, you know, that his discipline, You know we came from an old school, we got spanked a lot. And, uh, you know, frankly, dad's spankings were quite a bit worse than mom's, you know. And so when I'm waiting for my father to come home in these contexts, even though I'm still his child, even though I have a great relationship with him and, and many circumstances would have been eager for him to return home, in that sense, I was not eager. I wanted to shrink away. Uh, I wanted to hide, you know. There, there wasn't, you know, enough underwear in the world to be able to cover me uh, from what was coming my way. Right, And so, in this sense, perhaps, when it talks about in verse 28, shrinking away in shame, it may talk about those who really are genuine believers in Christ, but who are not living in a righteous way, or not living in a way that is worthy. And when Christ returns, if that's the situation we find ourselves in, then perhaps it will not be something that inspires us to rejoice the way that we should, um, even though we might still be his children. And so regardless of how you translate verse 28, whether or not you're taking it to mean that the unbelievers are being exposed uh, as frauds, as not being uh, in the children of God, or you're talking about believers who are living in an unworthy way, either way you look at it, the point is that the degree to which we live today in a righteous and worthy manner will increase our joy then when Christ returns. That we should seek to live in such a way that we won't be ashamed. And I know for myself, there are plenty of times where, um, you know, that I look forward for Christ to come. And there are also plenty of times where I'm like, you know, boy, I really wish Christ wouldn't come back when I was doing that thing. Because I would not want to be, you know, the, the point at which I first experienced that. So that's a call for us. It's a warning to us to live today in a way that when he comes, we won't experience shame. Instead, we'll experience confidence. That's the other response that John has in mind to the coming of christ and so he gives us some reasons to be confident Uh, if we look at chapter 3 verse 1 he starts by saying see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of god and such we are okay so the confidence that we have when we look forward to the return of Christ is first and foremost centered in the gospel reality that because Christ has come and died in our place for our sins, that we can be adopted into God's family, that we can be made his children. Um, John tells us, behold, look at this. It's a command. It's an imperative. You know, fix your attention on the, the richness of this gospel reality that we are the children of God. Um, I know that as a parent uh, with my daughter, Michaela, that this understanding of what it means to have a child and a father-child relationship is so much more real to me than it used to be before I had kids. And I just think about you know, the love that I have for my daughter and the things that I would do to, to protect her and the sacrifices I would make for her and to think that God thinks those ways about us, that we have the same... Uh, level of security or even actually a higher level because god loves us far more than i can love my daughter that we can have security and acceptance um that some in some way that is mysterious not even fully fleshed out that we're made joint heirs with christ that we're somehow elevated uh to being in some fashion and approaching the same status as, as the second person of the godhead um that is an amazing reality this is not something that we accomplish on our own this is a gift of grace that comes to us uh, through faith in jesus christ and so god calls us he says you're my children right um, that is a source of great confidence and when he calls us his children john writes and such we are because he really wants to hammer home that this is a reality even if it doesn't feel that way you know, sometimes there are times where we not, may not feel very much like God's children. But we have to remember that the gospel reality of our identity in Christ, for those of us who have responded to the call of the gospel, is a sure thing regardless of whether or not in a particular moment we feel very close to God. Our feelings change. Our feelings don't always tell us what is true. And John wants us to understand we really are, um, for those who have accepted the gospel, really are God's children. This is not just a legal fiction. It's not though God is saying well, you're not really my kids, but we'll pretend like it. He's saying, no, you really are my children. We have that relationship with him. And along with having that relationship and that security, knowing that we are the children of God, another aspect of being adopted into God's family is that we take on some characteristics, some genetic family characteristics of the Godhead. Uh, My wife is, uh, I tease her about this, she loves to try to, uh, when she looks at children, pick out the characteristics of like which parent, you know, they got the eyes from or the mouth or whatever. Uh, and so every time we're going out and we're meeting people and they have children for the first, you know, we're seeing their children for the first time, she's always trying to figure out, you know, what characteristics did they inherit from their parents. And the same thing happens to us When we're adopted as God's children, there's a certain DNA that we share with Jesus himself. And as a result, there are certain family characteristics that we have. And as a result of knowing what those characteristics are, it can give us confidence in our adoption. Does that make sense? We can see that we really are God's kids if we have the same DNA. And so there are two different things that John mentions in this particular passage. There are more things than this, but there's at least these two different things that John mentions in this passage that show us as having the DNA, as having the genetic inherited characteristics of a child of God. And so the first is that we practice righteousness. And in verse 29 of chapter 2, it says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him, talking about Christ. So because Christ is righteous and because he makes us his children, that makes us righteous as well. Okay? Now note, and this is very important, when we're talking about righteousness, when we're talking about holiness, this is a fruit, this is a result of being in Christ. It is not a condition. It is not something that we have to do on the front end. John doesn't say, if you're righteous, then Christ will adopt you as his child, he is saying, because you are adopted, because you have been given a new birth in the Holy Spirit, because of that gospel reality, you are going to practice righteousness. It is a result. Um, I know Mitch is fond of saying that uh, that the imperative, I'm sorry, the indicative comes before the imperative and you can't reverse the order. In other words, that that the command to live righteously always comes after the acknowledgement that we have this covenant relationship with uh, with Jesus Christ. It's not a condition for it. Okay? So... So that's one family characteristic. Those who have been born again, those who have experienced the gospel, will live in a righteous manner. And that's important to to really get a hold of in our cultural context because I think there's a lot of, I know that I grew up in churches in the past, that that tended to be very moralistic. Um, They didn't really talk much about the gospel. They talked a lot about, you know, here are the rules and you have to follow the rules. And and it was very... um, very much kind of like church is a self-help seminar um, you know here's five ways of having a better marriage here's four ways of controlling your anger you know all these different things and and because of that emphasis on living in a holy way without talking as much um, about the relationship with Christ' peace um, I think that that there's a lot of people that have kind of grown up in those situations or experienced that that overreact and we look at righteousness as being legalism and we say, well, I have freedom in Christ, so I'm not going to, you know, pursue discipline or I'm not going to pursue holiness or anything like that because that's just legalism. And uh, I know for myself and for folks I knew in college, you know, we would, um, I went to Bryan College, we talked a lot about biblical worldview and there was this attitude of like, well, since I know what the Christian worldview is, I can watch whatever movie I want or I can listen to whatever I want and it won't hurt me and I can tell you what the bad worldview is in it. And there was this kind of, you know, this. Almost, I don't know, the freedom in Christ piece became licentious. It was like, I can do whatever I want because Christ has forgiven me and I don't want to be legalistic. And that term has gotten so confused in our heads that sometimes any time we're called to live in discipline or called to live in righteousness, we end up hearing you know, legalism or we end up hearing that that's somehow antithetical to the gospel. But that's not the case. What it's saying here in John is that but righteous living, being a, a disciple of Christ, means that we will live in a righteous way as a result of the relationship we have with Christ. We can't claim to be God's children and not have some of those inherited characteristics and not live in a righteous and a worthy manner. And so if we live in righteousness, we can have confidence that we are God's kids. If we're not living in righteousness, our confidence uh, is going to be less than, uh, than that. I know that for myself, the times when I am most confident in the work of, of the gospel in my life are those times where I'm living the way I'm supposed to live. And when I go off and I deliberately sin and I live in rebellion, that shakes my confidence in the gospel. And so the more that we see righteousness being birthed in our life, the more we can say ah, we are God's kids. He's given us this family characteristic. Another ground for confidence that we can have, um, another family characteristic, if you will, is that the world will not Recognize will not understand uh, those who are in Christ. It says in, in chapter three, verse one. Um, after it talks about the love that, that the Father has for us, he says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. And the reality is is that when Christ came, um, the world rejected Him flat out. They did not see Him as being. Uh, you know, a a very important person. They did not see him as being God, of being worthy of worship and obedience. They ended up killing him on the cross. That was the way they treated Jesus. If we are going to be the kids in God's family, and if that was how they treated Jesus, that's the expectation of how we're going to be treated. Um, When we begin to to think as God thinks about things, when we start to embrace a Christian worldview, it really kind of turns cultural things on its head. It flips everything upside down. Um, you know, when you've started to really begun to grow and to walk in Christ and have your mind shaped by the Scripture and you start adopting the values and, and, the, and the things that Scripture teaches as being worthwhile, and then you go and you talk to those who are non-believers, I mean, there's some misunderstanding there. There's some awkwardness. I know that, that uh, whenever, um, you know, in a, in a few weeks we're going on a, a vacation and some of the folks that we'll be with are not necessarily believers, and, it's, and it gets awkward because my wife and my family, we just have a different set of values than, than all the people we're going to be with. Some of them are believers, some of them are not. You know, And it just gets awkward when you're with those who have not embraced the gospel and you're trying to talk with them. And there's just this sense of we're not on the same page. You know, We don't think the same things are important. That's a sign of being in the gospel. Um, this is important also because when believers experience persecution, when the world actually goes from just misunderstanding us to, to actively uh, seeking to do us harm, uh, it can be a great confidence to know that that's how they treated Christ as well. And this is important because in a natural human religion, we tend to treat our relationship with God like a contract. You know, I will do certain things, I will believe certain things, and in response, God will give me uh, health and prosperity and good fortune. And we look at it in this kind of contractual sort of way. Um, and that idea, unfortunately, gets propagated in some circles that, that you know, if only you come to Christ and only if you believe, then everything will be made uh, good for you and uh, and well for you. And that's just simply not the case. And so if that's the mentality that we have, if, if we start experiencing persecution, we might start thinking, well, you know, are we really in relationship with God? Is he really uh, on our side here? Or maybe have we broken the contract and, and maybe things aren't going so well? And And John is saying, no, if you experience persecution, if you experience a disconnect with the world, if you experience some pressure because of that, that is a sign that you have, a genetic family characteristic as a child of God because that's how Christ himself was also treated. And so he gives us, uh, John gives us two different family characteristics. He gives us that we practice righteousness and that we're going to be in opposition to the world as being characteristics that can point us to the gospel reality that we are God's child and that because we are God's child, we can have confidence when Christ returns that we can look forward to that eagerly and not shrink away in shame. But he goes a little bit further because he's going to give us some practical instruction on how our confidence in the gospel translates uh, into righteous living. And so uh, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. There's kind of an already but not yet tension that we see here in the text, that we are currently children of God. If you've accepted the gospel, if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are currently today a child of God. But there's also a sense in which what that means has not yet fully come to pass. It has not yet fully been revealed. It has not yet fully become a moment-by-moment experience that that we encounter. And so we, we look forward in anticipation to a time when Christ is going to come back, and the, the partial ways in which we experience blessing as God's children now becomes uh, a, full, uh, a full way of experiencing uh, all of the privileges of being God's child. I think it's important that as we look at our future status, and of course in this passage, John does not talk an awful lot about what the future looks like, but I do think it's important to point out one thing here that when we look toward the future about what our identity in Christ is going to be like and the blessing that's coming when we, uh, when Christ returns, that's going to be more than, not less than our current experience. Um, for a variety of reasons, there's been some teaching that has kind of circulated in the margins of the church that tend to look at eternity in ways that are very unbiblical. Um, you know, from, if you if you really want to take it to an extreme, you got the whole idea of, you know, fat babies on clouds playing harps. Um, Honestly, that is not a concept I am willing to die for, right? I mean, if my future destiny is to be a baby on a cloud playing a harp, then I'm done, you know, I'm, I'm going to check out of this thing. That is not the hope that I'm looking forward to. Um, and that is itself a symptom of a tendency that overly spiritualized heaven to the point where it becomes sort of this negation of our experience. It becomes everything that's the opposite of what we are now. And so we have no real content to sort of hang our hopes on it just becomes a sort of ghostly other Um, that is not really what scripture teaches as being our fate for eternity Um, this is a whole other sermon for really a series of sermons for a whole other time but if you look at the the balance of scripture and you look at it from genesis to revelation in particular you look at revelation you see what is in store for us what we see is that god is going to to um, make a new heaven and a new earth. And ultimately, our destiny is not so much that we're yanked out and, and put into some kind of a ghostly heaven, but rather that the new heaven comes down to the new earth, that the new Jerusalem comes down to earth, that God comes from heaven to earth to dwell with his people. And so what that means is that it's that when we look at at the future and we look at what we have a hope in and redemption, it's not going to be that our experience is going to be less than what we currently enjoy. It's going to be more than. Um, we look at the resurrected Christ as, as an example of what's going to come. You know, Christ did some things that were similar to what we did. He ate fish. He hung out with people. He could walk around. There was a lot of activities that were very similar. Of course, he could also walk through walls and fly in the sky. And who knows whether or not that's going to be a common experience. But the point is, is that, that Christ was not a ghost. He was not some ethereal being he was still someone that you could actually touch and and he could still experience those things and i think it's important for us to remember that because the temptation that we are going to receive a lot of times that we do receive is that heaven is some you know ethereal out there not really interesting place to be that right now right here is where life is is at and we have that tendency like i was talking about earlier to think then that the passing pleasures of sin today or what's happening in the world today is of somehow more significance or of greater value than what's coming down the road. When we begin to see that even if it's not clearly revealed exactly what our experience is going to be when Christ returns, if we begin to see that that is something that is better than our current experience, then it becomes a lot easier for us to live in righteousness today, to remember that that we have something to look forward to, that it's not going to be taken away from us. Uh, what is good or what is what is really real? Um, we see also that what we're going to see when Christ returns is that we're going to see His full glory. It says that we will see Him, and this is the great hope of Christianity. We were created to see Christ as being supremely valuable. That is that is why we were made, right? We were created to run off of Christ. I, I think Michael uh, mentioned this uh, not long ago that. It's, quoting C.S. Lewis, that the way a car is designed to run on gasoline. Um, And so when, when God designed us as people, he designed us to see him in his glory and to respond in worship. And to try to put something else other than Christ in us would be the same as if I went out to my car right now and I tried to put oatmeal in the gas tank, right? It's not what it was designed to run off of. If I put oatmeal in my car, it is not going to function properly. Right? In the same way, the hope that we have is that when we finally see Christ, we will be actually engaging in the very thing that we were created to do from the very beginning. What the fall has done to us is it has obliterated in us our ability to see Christ in his glory. It's blinded us. Right? We have a very hard time seeing Christ now and seeing him as being glorious, and seeing him as being worthy. And instead, we have a tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. And the way God designed things originally, when we experienced good things in the creation, those were launching pads to worshiping Christ. So, you know, originally, if things were functioning as they should be, if I'm eating, you know, a massive pizza with cheese stuffed crust and all the good stuff on it, that when I'm eating that, I would say, Wow, God, how amazing you are to have created cheese crust pizza. Right? But instead, what the fall does to us is it obliterates our vision, and so instead I just say, wow, you know, cheesy pizza. And it just stays at that level. So the great hope that we have is that when Christ returns, we will see him. We will be able to finally uh, engage in the very thing that we were created for at the very beginning of time to see and to worship Christ, and that will be a satisfaction and a joy that we can't even begin to understand now. Okay? And because we'll see Christ in that way, it says in verse uh, 2 there, that we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Now, this is an interesting connection that John is making. He's saying that because we will see Christ in his full glory, that because of that sight, we will be transformed into being like Christ. Okay? Um, this actually echoes uh, some things that the Apostle Paul wrote about in second Corinthians. Let's look at that very briefly. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter three verse eight. I'm sorry, eighteen. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, justice from the Lord, the Spirit. And so Paul is talking about the same thing, that as we see Christ in his glory, we're transformed and we're sanctified and made to look more like Christ. Now, this ability to see the glory of Christ only comes as a result of the gospel. If you look down a little bit later in chapter 4 there in 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 3, uh, Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants, For Jesus' sake, for God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. On our own, unaided, we will not see Christ as being a any value or of any worth. Our fallen condition is to be blinded and it says very explicitly in scripture that, that Satan and the world and our flesh blinds us to not being able to see Christ as being very important or worth our time or worth our worship. And so the ability to see Christ and his glory comes as a result of the spirit doing a work, a gospel work in our hearts. And it's, again, it's very important to, to see that when we're talking about righteousness and sanctification, that that is always a result of a fruit of a prior gospel work in our heart. It is not the condition for it. okay? But when we see Christ by the Spirit, God uses our experience of seeing him to transform us into his image. And see, the reason that that is so vital, the rate that works, is that the lie behind all the idols that we turn to is that they are going to give us satisfaction. When I turn away from Christ and I turn towards something in the created order, whether that's food or work or entertainment or sex or whatever it may be, when I turn to those things, the lie that's behind all of it is that this thing will bring me satisfaction. This thing will bring me fulfillment. That this thing is better than Christ, right? And that's my natural fallen heart is to see Christ as not being worthy of my worship, of being what's ultimately going to satisfy me. And so the cure for that is to see Christ as being glorious, as being worthy of worship, as being something that is supremely satisfying. And to the degree to which I see that, then I will begin to voluntarily give up the things of the world because I will see Christ as having superior value. Um, You know, a group of people that I think really exemplify this well are the Puritans. And I think the Puritans in our context really have a bad reputation. We look at the Puritans and we see things and we say, oh, you know, these people were killjoys, right? I mean, they didn't even celebrate Christmas for Pete's sake. Are they Nazis? I mean, what's going on? Um, the reason the pilgrims did so much of what they did, the Puritans did what they did, is because they understood Christ to be of such supreme value that they were going to bank everything in their life and in their existence on trying to get as much Christ as possible. And this was not to them seen as a turning away from something that was lesser or giving up of something that's lesser. They, was, they saw this as pursuing something that would lead them into greater joy, greater life, greater satisfaction. I know that as I've matured and grown in christ i've experienced this to be true when i was a younger christian it was very easy for me to to do a lot of different worldly things and to think that those things would give me satisfaction but as i began to see christ as being really what is ultimately satisfying you know it doesn't make sense if, if I'm working in my to, to, to try to see Christ as being all that my life is consisting of and of everything that has value and fulfillment and satisfaction, and then if I go and I pursue an entertainment choice that is the opposite of that, that makes sin look attractive, that makes Christ look unworthy, that has an effect on me. I mean why would I make it harder on myself? To, to love Christ? Why would, I, why would I engage in activities that's going to make Christ seem of less value? I should only pursue things that are going to make Christ seem of more value because that's ultimately what my heart desperately needs. And when we begin to think in those ways, we begin to see that righteousness is not something that God gives to us to kill our joy, that when he gives us Uh, rules and laws for righteous living that this is a grace that he gives to us the ten commandments are a gift of grace Because they show us how the human heart should function properly That this becomes the means by which we can experience more of who god is And we can turn away from the passing pleasures of sin and follow hard after christ Understanding that that's going to increase our joy And if we don't see that if we don't see christ as being worth that then it's just going to devolve into moralism. It's just going to devolve in legalism. Here's where the real problem is when we're talking about legalism, is when we try to become righteous on our own grounds for our own purposes. Okay. So when we look at the logic here, and this is really important as John finishes up his thought in verse 3 of chapter 3, that... Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, which is the hope that he's talking about, is that when Christ comes again, we will see him as he is, we'll be transformed into his image. That's the hope he's talking about. He says that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, the logic that John is saying is that because we are seeking to to follow after Christ and because we have that relationship, we're going to seek to be pure in our lives. And that is because Christ is pure. If we're seeking intimacy with God, we have to be pure to enjoy that intimacy. A sinful person will not enjoy intimacy with a holy God, right? If, if I were to come with all of my sin and if, if there was no forgiveness, if there was no repentance, if there was no sanctification in my heart and I was placed before the almighty God of this universe and all of his perfection and all of his holiness, I would not enjoy the experience, Right? God cannot abide sin. He cannot abide wickedness. We will not enjoy that. And so if I'm going to enjoy a relationship with God, it's going to be on the ground that I want to be holy because he is holy so that I can enjoy being with him. We already experience this now in this world because we know that it's easier to hang out with and be friends with people who share similar interests. Uh, This is not a perfect analogy by any stretch of the imagination because of a lot of reasons, but my wife really has a thing for period British romantic dramas, which I don't share. Um, and so, uh, you know, from time to time, she really wants to watch, you know, Jane Austen or something. And I will say that after having experienced a, a wider sampling of the various romantic things I'm offering today, that I'm beginning to develop an appreciation for Jane Austen. But still, uh, that said, that is not exactly, you know, I don't, Really relish the idea of spending a weekend watching Pride and Prejudice. Um, now she's my wife, and there's a reason that I get called there to kind of not be selfish and lay down my wife and watch Jane Austen with her anyway. But the point is, the point is, is that we tend to enjoy things. It's much easier when my wife's like, "Yeah, let's go watch Iron Man 3. You know, that's a lot easier for me than, "Yeah, let's go watch Pride and Prejudice," right? And so, in the same way, to the extent to which we um, are pursuing righteousness. It should be because ultimately what our heart desires is to be in relationship with and intimacy with Christ. And we will enjoy that relationship if we're doing the things that Christ is doing. If we're not doing those things, we're not going to enjoy that relationship very much. On the other hand, the reverse, and this is where legalism comes in, is that rather than seeking after righteousness as a means to the end of having fellowship with Christ, we desire righteousness by itself Because basically what's happening in our hearts, and we don't actually vocalize this, but basically what's going on on the inside is we say, I really want to be worshipped. And I realize in myself that there are some things that prevent myself from feeling comfortable with worshipping me and that are a barrier to other people worshipping me. Therefore, I need to get my life together so that I can feel comfortable worshipping myself and see myself as being a worthy object and other people will see me as a worthy object of worship as well. That's legalism, okay? Legalism is when we try to basically make our righteousness the ground of which we're going to feel satisfied in ourself and become the thing that's the object that's really our heart is drawn toward. Righteousness can be, though, a means of grace if it's something that we look at as a means rather than an end, and, the, and it's a means to fellowship with God. And that only comes to the extent to which we see God. So that might be kind of a complicated way of putting it, and in a nutshell, that's why it's so very vital for us to see Christ, because at the end of the day, the more we see who Christ is, the more we see him as being worthy, all those other things work themselves out. To the extent to which we don't see Christ, to the extent to which we're blinded from his glory, to the extent to which we don't have a hope that he's coming again and look toward that with eager anticipation, the things of this world are going to seem more attractive. That's basically what it boils down to, this whole passage in a nutshell, and so what we desperately need is to see Christ, to see a vision of him as being worthy. And so John does give us, there's one point of application for this whole, this whole deal. And it's found at the very beginning of the passage in verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him. The way that we see Christ is by abiding in Christ. Okay. Now this this phrase, abiding in Christ, is a packed phrase. I went through and I looked at First John and I looked at every instance in First John where it linked abiding with Christ with something. Where it says, you know, if you do this, you abide in Christ, or if you don't do this, you're not abiding in Christ. And there's at least five different things. Now, this is again, this is just me. I don't. There might be more things, but just from my own reading of First John, there's at least five different domains of kinds of activities that is part of what it means to abide in Christ. And that through that abiding in Christ, we end up seeing Christ. And as a result of that, we get to walk in righteousness in order that we can experience intimacy and joy in in that relationship. So there's five different things here. These are our application points, and we'll be finished. So the first is to believe in and confess that Jesus Christ is God's Son. The foundation of abiding in Christ comes... In the gospel it comes in the gospel confession that jesus came in the flesh died in our place for our sins And that gospel message is one that we have to preach to ourselves And we confess publicly before others on a regular basis. We never grow beyond our need for that And so the person who is abiding in christ is a gospel centered person. They are constantly Meditating on and confessing acknowledging publicly the reality of the identity of jesus christ and his atoning work uh, through the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's the first piece of what it means to abide in Christ. Another piece is to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't want to go off into a whole sidetrack on the whole Pentecostal movement, but regardless to say that that for all of us, there's never a point in our life when we have enough Holy Spirit. It's ne- We should never get to a point where we're like, yes, I've had enough God, thank you very much, I will move on to something else. So regardless of what you might think about the whole charismatic movement, There is always room to grow in terms of seeking to be filled more of the the Holy Spirit, which comes from repentance and it comes from uh, seeking for the Spirit, praying that the Spirit will do things in us that we can't do in ourselves. We ought to live supernatural lifestyles. We ought to live in such a way that when people look at us, they say, well, it's obvious that Brad's not doing that stuff because I know Brad and he's not very uh, amazing at anything that if there's something that's good that's coming out of me, it's because of the Spirit being at work in me. So we seek to be filled with, anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's a second piece of what it means to abide in Christ. A third piece is to frequently meditate on the Word of God, which makes sense because God's Word is where Christ is most clearly revealed to us. And if our desperate need is to see Christ, then we're going to have to be people who spend significant amounts of time looking for Christ in His Word so that we can see Him. Um, Now god does reveal himself christ is revealed through the created order as well So so there are things we can get outside of scripture, but scripture is the preeminent The primary way that we experience christ And so if we understand that seeing him is our deepest need then we're going to be people who meditate on the word of god We're going to read it. We're going to study it to seek christ in it Another part of what it means to walk in christ is to walk in righteousness Um, That that abiding in Christ means walking as Christ walked. It means understanding that righteousness is a family characteristic. And so that becomes uh, another piece, that as we live in righteousness, then we enjoy greater fellowship with Jesus. And then finally, and this fits in with what we've been talking about for quite a while, that part of what it means to, to abide in Christ is to be in fellowship with one another, to love one another. Of all the commands that God gives us of what it means to live in righteousness and holiness, one of the chief commands that's emphasized throughout First John is loving other Christians, of being in the body. And this is so vital. And we, I know we've been talking about fellowship now for like a gajillion weeks, but the reality is is that this is a huge challenge for us. We live in a culture that isolates us and we end up being fragmented and living away from one another and we don't really get in each other's lives. What we're experiencing here right now is not sufficient for fellowship. It's it's an equipping. It's it's good. It's worth our time to be here gathered like this on Sunday morning, but I don't know many of you, and many of you don't know me, and you're not going to know the stuff and the junk that's in my life and what my needs are, and I'm not going to know what's in your heart and what your needs are. That comes from spending quantity time together, not quality time, quantity time. We have to do life on life. We have to be in each other's lives so that we can express love towards one another, and that's part of what it means to abide in Christ, that as we delve deeper into our community that we experience God in one another because Christ dwells in you and Christ dwells in me. And so as I love and minister to you, in some sense I'm also ministering to Christ. And as you love and minister me, in some sense I'm getting to see and taste Christ through you. And so being in community is part of what it means to abide in Christ. And so those are five different things, five different domains of abiding in Christ that John talks about. And we do those things in order that we might see Christ, in order that we might have That hope renewed in us that he is coming again, that this is something that is worth giving up the the passing pleasures of sin for and that we live in righteousness, not as an end, not so that we feel good about ourselves, but as a means that we would enjoy all of the the, the goodness and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that God offers us in knowing and worshiping Christ. So that's uh, that's basically it this morning. Let's pray and uh, put to practice what we've seen in God's word. Father, um, I know that my ability to uh, reveal you as being a, a worthy object is very poor. I pray, Spirit, that you would lift uh, blindness in the hearts of your people, that you would cause people to see you as being uh, worth everything that you are worth, that, that people would see that Christ is supremely valuable, that, that, that you, Father, are worth everything that we have and everything that we are, and that whenever we are tempted to think that we're sacrificing or missing out on some piece of life by rejecting an activity that you forbid in your word, that we're not we're not walking away from something that has value. We're walking towards something that has value. So would you just do that, Father? Would you help us to see Christ as we worship together, as we go about our week? Help us to see Christ in all that we do. I pray, Father, that you would also empower us to engage in the disciplines, the medicine that you give us in your word. You tell us exactly how we can see you better. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to, to walk in those ways and to do it in hope uh, that we can enjoy intimacy with you. And so we ask that you would do this. That you would be glorified in our midst and in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.